Hello, and welcome to Seek Learning. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. On this podcast, we work to bring you the most up-to-date perspectives on the latest educational research. A few years ago, I was a classroom teacher at Mountain View Seminary in Orem, Utah. We were having an ordinary day. It was only a few days before Christmas break, and the students were getting a little restless, knowing that they were about to get a long vacation. I just finished class and walked out into the hall when I saw the secretary of our seminary looking at her computer with a look of shock on her face. I walked in to see if she was okay and then saw the headline. There was a school shooting in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. I felt sick to my stomach just hearing about the shooting, and as more details came through in the reports, the day just got worse. The shooter killed 26 people in a matter of minutes. 20 of them were between 6 and 7 years old, and the other 6 victims were adult staff of the school. It was a nightmare scenario. Now, I wish I could say that things have gotten better since then, but they haven't. A rash of mass shootings has swept the country, and many of them involve schools. And everybody recognizes how terrible this is, but we don't always agree on the solutions. So I deeply wish that we didn't have to discuss the topic of today's podcast, but our guest today, Spencer Weiler, has done a lot of study on this question and has some good practical applications for simple things we can do to make schools more safe. That's the topic of today's episode of Seek Learning. In the lives of Latter-day Saints, education is central to their religion and its practice. For members of the church, education is not merely a good idea. It's a commandment. At the David O. McKay School of Education at Brigham Young University, scholars carry out different studies every year in the field of education. In this podcast, we speak to these scholars to find out what they discovered about education and what does it mean for Latter-day Saints. How can these findings be applied in home and gospel settings? Finally, what inspired them to become an educator, and how has it affected their lives? Education is the difference between wishing you could help other people and being able to help them. This is the Seek Learning Podcast, presented by the BYU Education Society. Our guest today on the podcast, Spencer Weiler, graduated from Brigham Young University in 1992, then taught history at Orem High School for seven years. In 2000, he left the classroom and became an assistant principal at American Fork Junior High School. Then in 2003, he pursued a Ph.D. at Virginia Tech and continued an administration in Blacksburg. After finishing his doctorate in 2007, Spencer accepted a position at the University of Northern Colorado and remained there until coming to BYU in 2019. He eventually advanced to the rank of full professor at the University of Northern Colorado and upon leaving was granted emeritus status. Now on his own bio, Spencer wrote, I strive to inspire and empower aspiring educational leaders to be outstanding administrators who rely on the teachings of Christ and work tirelessly to support the learning of all students. Spencer further writes, I subscribe to a pedagogical approach that actively engages learners in the learning process. Specifically, I rely on sustained group work and learning activities that afford students the opportunity to develop a degree of expertise related to the curriculum being studied. In addition, I lead discussions that encourage students to wrestle with applying various theoretical concepts to the reality 
of being a school teacher in the 21st century. Spencer was good enough to sit down with Lynette Christensen from the Seek Learning team, and let's join their conversation. We're delighted today to have Dr. Spencer Weiler with us from um, the Educational Leadership and Foundations Department in the McKay School of Education. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, Dr. Weiler has been doing some research on something that we're all concerned about, and that's the prevention of school shootings. Specifically, his research is about the idea of arming educators and the school board policy that's related to that. But to begin with, because school shootings are the concern of so many um, and there's not agreement on what the preventative measures should be. Could you just give us an overview of school shootings and the challenges that go along with us trying to prevent these terrible things? Right. Um, so I think the biggest challenge lies in the fact that um, this deals either implicitly or explicitly with a political hot button topic, which is dealing with gun restriction versus gun rights, right? Um, or restricting access to guns. As far as an overview of school shootings in the modern era, with the uh, shooting at uh, the, the mass school shooting at Columbine, that really put um, mass school shootings and school shooting and school violence on the map. Um, that's not to say that School shootings didn't occur prior to Columbine, but um, Columbine, with its wall-to-wall media coverage, once it happened, um, became probably the starting point for uh, mass school shootings in the 21st century. And um, some of the issues and challenges related to this is you you have, as an educator, this this balance between creating a safe, nurturing, inviting school climate and a safe climate, right? So how do we how do we allow students to feel safe in schools while um creating this climate that that enhances student learning, but then also ensure that bad actors can't come into the building and and do harm to students and staff. Right. So there are a lot of educators that listen to the podcast, but also parents. And there's anxiety around this for students, educators, parents, just all of us, really. So is there anything you can tell us that might ease people's minds? Absolutely. I mean, so statistically speaking, when we look at mass school shootings, the odds of um of a mass school shooting happening at any school in the United States on any given school day is about one in 16 million. Um, my kids really enjoy playing Dungeons and Dragons. So I, I say picture a, instead of a 20 sided die, a 16 million sided die and you roll that. And then if, if it comes up one, you're going to have a mass school shooting. So the odds of something like that happening are extremely low. Um, but there is a chance, right, that that it could happen. And so now the the other thing that I would say to anxious students, parents, community members, educators, is that school school officials across the board are taking a number of different measures to make sure that schools are 
safer and um and ultimately that they're less that the perception is that schools are no longer soft um targets but actually harder targets um and what that means is um if if there is if if I'm a person that wants to do harm to somebody else well I may not go to a bank because I know there's an armed um resistance at a bank whereas if I go to a mall or a movie theater maybe maybe the perception is those are softer targets and I think historically schools have been perceived as soft targets over time school officials have taken a number of different actions to address um a comprehensive um approach to school safety so it's not just we need to bring school resource officers in or we need to have uh video cameras or we need to lock doors or we need to enhance mental uh health access for students but but schools are uh, pretty much across the board adopting this this more comprehensive approach that aims at addressing a multitude of factors that collectively I think makes schools a much safer place. Right, which which brings some comfort, right? And I think that's a great way to lead into what you've been studying, which is one of the ways that's out there which of course this is a complex issue, so there's agreement and disagreement. This idea of arming educators in school buildings as a safety measure and then all the complications that go along with the policy that would guide or or make that doable and and safe right following the uh the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut there were calls by the NRA and other political leaders to um look at arming educators as a form of safety um or enhancing school safety within a school building um the i think the perception at the time was oh this would be a cost neutral way of um of addressing this issue of uh, school safety in reality it's not a cost neutral um uh, one one area of research that my colleagues and I have done in this area is we surveyed um superintendents and asked them about what precautions that they would want to see in place in order to allow educators to possess a firearm in a school building and and then we itemized those and we we priced them out if you will our conclusion was and this was probably about 10 years ago um that the costs associated with actually arming an educator would come in between um 60 to 90,000 a year um depending on the the level of support that the school district were to provide and and that was quantified in in terms of like training in particular um and ammo um and other you know like a gun safe are you going to buy the weapon and and I believe I'd have to go back and look but I believe those numbers were the initial and then there was an uh initial upfront cost and then the annual expenses for from year to year were in the ballpark of like 30 to 50,000. It's not a cost neutral um solution to school safety. It's probably more accurate to say arming uh school district employees um because it's not it could be a custodian it could be an administrator it could be anybody in, theoretically in the building um really gain traction in certain areas and specifically with more geographically isolated and rural school districts um 
where uh, the response time for law enforcement could be up to 30, 40 minutes. Um, and in those situations, then all of a sudden, uh, this remedy does begin to make some sense where if if um, some of the research suggests that once confronted, many, many of the perpetrators will either um, confronted by resistance, the many of the perpetrators will either um, take their own lives or will surrender or will get either injured or killed by the resistance. Right. Um, so it, the idea is once the perpetrator faces resistance, most of the time the incident itself ends. Well, if that's the case, then if we're looking at a 30, 40 minute response time from law enforcement, maybe having a, an armed educator in the building makes a lot of sense. But by contrast, I've talked to a number of superintendents. Like I, I one superintendent um, made this comment years ago where he said, I have educators in my building who I barely trust with students. I would never trust this person with a weapon, which begs a number of questions like what are you doing to make sure that this is a high quality educator in the in the building but i always wrestle with this if i were a classroom teacher and i was the one designated to um have access to a firearm so and then an armed intruder actually came into the building and again there's a one in 16 million chance every day that this could happen so first of all do i have the weapon with me or is it in a gun safe if it's in a gun safe do I go, how do I go access it, right? So there's that that first level of logistical concern. Yeah, and could you get there? Right, safely, right? Yeah. And then, then let's, so then, one, then once I have my firearm, um, the next question is, am I to leave my students and then go confront the armed intruder or not, right? So I don't know if that has been fully thought through. But but what are the implications from a legal liability perspective? Let's say I leave my students and then the armed intruder comes into my classroom and and wreaks havoc within that classroom. And I wasn't there. Um, you know, so so, again, there there are some questions there. And then the third question that I always have is um, oftentimes these armed intruders are armed with high-powered semi-automatic weapons, and oftentimes school districts are um, uh, providing their employees with a handgun. I think we saw at Robb Elementary School where even law enforcement faced encounter, you know, they faced resistance from the armed, armed intruder, and so then they stayed in the hallway for over an hour because they felt like it wasn't safe for them to confront the armed intruder. Well, if I just have a handgun and and I'm facing somebody with an AK-47 or something like that, I don't like my chances necessarily. Um, and and then like the la- last thing I'll say with this the, to emphasize the complications of this issue are um, there was a, a STEM school in Colorado where they hired a retired police officer as their security officer, and he had a weapon. So this is a person that has gone through extensive police training to deal with, um, you know, uh, using a weapon in a stressful situation because they had an armed intruder come into the building. He pulls out his weapon and he sees somebody coming around the hallway, shoots, misses. It's a police officer that's coming and the bullet ricochets and hits a student. You know, so 
So that's somebody with extensive training who, in the heat of the moment, didn't necessarily make the right choice. I can only imagine what I would do with inferior training, and and I'm an educator. Like I'm I'm I am drawn to this profession because I am a compassionate person, right? And I'll say this: like, can you imagine as an educator in that situation in the STEM school? The student who was hit by the bullet, you know, she was injured. She was not killed or anything. Um, But what if an educator inadvertently shot a student um, who wasn't the armed intruder? Or even like if this is a student that I've worked with and he he or she is the armed intruder. uh, Those are really tough questions that, that, you know, can I pull the trigger and. And shoot a student um, who's potentially going to do harm to other people. Yeah, there's no easy answer here, is there? No. And it gets more complicated as we talk about what is this, if if a district does decide they want to do this, what does this mean policy-wise? Because you you address some of those things a little bit, but it's so complex, right? What kind of gun you're going to have, where you're going to keep it, what kind of ammunition, and then there's probably a thousand other things that have to be considered. I also was thinking about some of the research that I read to prepare for this, where, you know, like you like you mentioned, you can have a school resource officer and some of those things, but th- the research doesn't show that that necessarily prevents or makes it less severe. It's The research shows it's more about the type of weapon that comes into the school with the shooter, which gets into some difficult issues as far as gun safety and gun rights. And that's that speaks to what you were saying about the politicalization of these kinds of issues. Yeah. I, so obviously there's, I mean, in many ways, many educational issues, we can look at it from an educational perspective or a societal perspective. And uh, so, so for example, you know, closing the achievement gap. Well, we can say, oh, schools, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But until we as a society address housing instability, food insecurities, or job instability for families, we're not going to be able to address, for example, intra- or inter-district mobility issues and students bouncing from school to school over the course of a school year because their families lack stability and 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 so so despite all the best efforts of schools to address achievement gap issues there are bigger societal issues that are at play i feel like the same thing could be applied to that same concept could be applied to this issue of school safety or safe, you know school safety in that um yes schools are taking um a number of different measures and implementing these comprehensive school safety plans that go beyond just arming an educator or having security personnel or having a school resource officer um, to ensure safety. And there's a bigger societal issue at play that um, needs to be addressed, like with whatever that addressing looks like. But but we need to have the political will to tackle some some very divisive and um, um, difficult topics. Yeah, which is a pretty big challenge, right? Now that Spencer's outlined some of the key issues with regards to school safety, we thought we'd ask him some practical suggestions, some things that we can do right now to help our schools be safe in the face of some of the challenges that we're dealing with. 
Let's rejoin Spencer and Lynette for Act 2 of their conversation. I've been thinking about here in Utah in the last several weeks. There have been several school violence hoaxes, calls to the schools, and it's so disconcerting for everyone, right? Thankfully, they were hoaxes, but it causes anxiety for the students, anxiety. for It's so disruptive, right, because you have to take every call seriously and the anxiety that produces. And so what would be your recommendation for educators, given that kind of a situation where, you know, it's it's in the news, people see in the news when there is really a shoot a mass shooting anywhere, which is disconcerting to us. But then the anxiety knowing that, okay, there have been some calls, they turned out to be a hoax. How How do we help kids feel safe and less anxious about those kinds of things when they happen? Yeah, so that's a really complicated question in that um, many of the measures that we put into place actually induce greater anxiety. Um, I, I recently met with, um, about a year ago, met with some students in Oregon, and one of the students referred to her generation as the lockdown generation. Like they were born after Columbine and that, that's, this is all they know. And, and I, I'd like the parallel to that would be I grew up in California and in the land of earthquakes. And, and so like I, it was just commonplace. Oh, duck and cover. And, and, and I know like if there, we, we got an earthquake right now. I would go toward, toward a door frame or I'd get under a tent. Like I, Same it's here. been, yeah. it's been ingrained in me. And, and you know, the sad reality is that we, this, the current generation and every subsequent generation of of children are going to be kind of labeled as the the lockdown generation um and and again those as we talk about drills that produces anxiety um i just heard a piece on uh npr um the other day about where they interviewed this student in colorado who um had also experienced this swatting, I think is what what it's called, where somebody calls in a a hoax saying, "Hey, I'm right outside the building, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go in and uh, shoot everyone up, or whatever the phrase, however they phrase it." And um, so the school went into lockdown, and the, and she talked about how suddenly the lights went out, and and her first reaction was, "I'm gonna die." Um, and 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 again, wow, that's a really scary. Um, reality for i think students today that that i didn't have to deal with when i was growing up so as an educator like what would my recommendations be to educators to um help address and alleviate that anxiety i mean i think this is where it comes back to this comprehensive approach we can't just be focused on prevention in terms of Oh, the armed intruder is in the building and we need to um, face or, or provide resistance to that individual or those individuals. Um, I think the preventative work also begins well before um, we even get to that point. Right. Um, so, again, I, I made reference to this earlier, but mental health counseling and, and what are we doing as educators to make sure that every student has a meaningful connection with an adult and a peer every day. Um, that, like that, that, that aspect of culture and climate, I think 
is paramount. Are we observant? Are educators being observant of the students that are coming into the rooms and, and noticing differences in body language or behaviors and, and then having those conversations? And, and then again, somewhat related to the mental health side is um, over the years, we cut, we've cut in public education counseling services. And, and, and I would push back against that. I think counseling services are paramount. As, as a former high school history teacher, I wasn't trained to provide the emotional support for um, students that may have been struggling. But we had counselors who were trained in that area. But reality is oftentimes counselors have caseloads of five, six, seven hundred students to the point where they couldn't see, even if they saw three students a day, every day of the school year, they couldn't see every one of their students. That's not ideal. And and then it's re- it becomes easier for students to fall between the cracks. Right, right. I think it's reassuring to know that there are some things we can do. Because sometimes when tragedy like this occurs or we think of the potential of it, we feel like we're, there's nothing we can do. And you've given some great things that people can simply try to do and be vigilant about every day. And I'm so with you on all of what you just said. It's important. And we said earlier, part of what's important is that we get to the political places where we can change those things that are truly going to make the difference. So, Spencer, for you, you just gave a great takeaway. But I'm wondering for you, what what would the other great takeaways be that you would want people to know? Yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway specifically to the idea of um, arming school district employees to, as a way of en- enhancing school safety. Um, I would really encourage school leaders, and I'll say school district officials, to do a cost-benefit of an analysis of um, identifying how much is it going to actually cost this particular school dis- district to arm an educator and then how much does it cost to hire a trained school a law enforcement officer as a school resource officer and then decide which one is more cost efficient um yeah because it depends on the size of your district right because if you're going to arm someone and you've got 20 buildings or 50 absolutely you're going to need somebody in each one of those buildings but but i if if I were a superintendent today and I had the choice between arming a a school district employee or hiring a school resource officer, I would hire the school resource officer, right? Um, Because the only exception I would give to that is if I were in a geographically isolated rural area where law enforcement response time was more than five, 10 minutes. So again, my big takeaways would be, again, do that cost-benefit analysis and then be mindful of community perceptions. Um, uh, some communities are going to be really favorable of of this idea of arming um, school district employees and other communities are going to be um, uh, really against it. And, and, and I think um, public education is really in the crosshairs of the culture wars right now, and this just could be another aspect of of this um, the culture wars influencing 
the governance of public education. And so um, school superintendents really need to be politically savvy in that regard. Um, and then and then there's there's also this issue of um, do you do you advertise it? The fact that, hey, we now have armed educator or armed employees in this building as a form of prevention or do you keep it a secret? And and so there, there are a number of other um, issues that I think school district officials really need to think through. And finally, I think I would say related to this, it's imperative that school district officials work closely with the local law enforcement agency and and uh, do handle this practice of arming educators in a collaborative form, meaning um, – you know, if I'm the law, local law enforcement that's responding to a uh, an issue of an armed intruder in a building, I need to come in and know that you are the educator designated as the one who will have the firearm so that when I see you and, and I, I think you're I, the I, school shooter, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I need to not only know who it is, but have a relationship with that person so that when I see you in the heat of the moment, I'll know. You're not the armed intruder. You're all you're on my side. You're a good guy. Right. Um, and so that that uh, that that relationship um, between local law enforcement and the school district is, I think, imperative. If we look at the perpetrators of mass school shootings that are students or former students, there can there can be some commonalities between some of them as far as struggling academically or um, poor attendance, right? Um, marginalized socially. And now I always want to be cautious about that because if we say, okay, how many students, and most, most perpetrators are males. So how many male students are struggling academically, struggling with their attendance and are marge? Well, it's, it's a large number of students, especially if we're in a larger school. So, so I'm hesitant to say, oh, like that's that, that's who we need to pay attention to. But but if we do see a stark decline in academic performance, like here's a student that was getting A's and B's and now is getting D's and F's. OK, that's a red flag. And and do we have a mechanism to say, wow, Spence, you're struggling academically. Let's do a quick assessment of how things are going. And again, that's where a counseling, a count, increasing counseling and um and maybe having a a safety team within a building to to just that includes um parents and 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 oh it could almost be like an IEP team um that could just kind of check in with the student and say how are we doing and what's going on i think those kind of preventative safety measures are essential and imperative when it comes to ensuring that you have this comprehensive safety and security plan. I think that would resonate with a lot of people. I mean, not just educators, but just parents and people in the community. Yeah. Anything else you want to add as a takeaway? Yes, I would like to add that um, the um, each situation it is unique to its setting, right? And so um, I I think there there isn't just one answer that fits all school districts across the nation when it comes to comprehensive safety and security and specifically this idea of arming educators. And so, again, school district officials would be well served to be mindful of their local context when when navigating 
these issues. I'm going to give one other. I, I think oftentimes we as educators and policymakers may sometimes overlook the student perspective. Um, and, and so I, I would really encourage educators who are wrestling with safety and security issues to engage students in that dialogue. The, you know, students, especially as we get into secondary level, but, but even at the elementary level, they're incredibly thoughtful, insightful, and, and can really provide us with, um, the, again, the context and the, the perspective that can ensure that we come up with a, a sound approach to safety and security in schools. That's a powerful insight and an empowering one. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what can I'm, adults in the community and, you know, parents, community members do to influence what happens in schools in regards to this and the school policy that drives it? Right. Yeah. So uh, like if I were meeting with a group of parents, I would encourage them, one, to be involved, um, be aware, you know, as as they're involved in their schools, they're seeing what's going on. Um, parents can become consumers of research and and allow that research to really influence their um, their role as advocates for um, their local schools and and public education in general. Um, and then, you know, implicit in that get involved is um, here in Utah, we have school community councils um, that require, as per state statute, um, parents to be involved in these these committees. Um, what a great way to really be a part of the governance process within um, your local school and and then to become an advocate for a comprehensive safety and security plan within the school. Um, we're, we're working on a little research right now where we're, we're profiling the mass, the, the mass school shootings that have occurred since 1997. Um, and what's really interesting about these, um, um, the, the data that we've collected is that at elementary schools, um, the perpetrator is always somebody who's not affiliated with the school. Um, in one incident, the and, and I think this was Sandy Hook, the perpetrator was a former student, but years ago, right? And, and it kind of goes with the territory with elementary schools. Now, by the way we're defining mass school shootings is um, two or more people are injured or killed and um, the, intru- the armed intruder or intruders came in to the school building during school hours without purposely targeting an individual or individual. So it was truly an, a random act of um, violence. So I think if I were an elementary principal looking at these data, I would say we need to lock down. Like we, we need to close our campus during the school day so that outside folks are unable to get into the building. By contrast, um, in secondary schools, the perpetrators almost exclusively are current or former students. Um, and, and there's a lot of, um, in fact, the only incident where that was not the case was the, um, the K-12 school, in, the Amish school in Pennsylvania, if you remember that incident. 
I think it would look different at the elementary than a secondary level. And, uh, and that's, again, bringing it back to parents, their role in being consumers of research and then advocates for school, you know, sounds, uh, approaches within their school, huge. But when parents, um, advocate for public education, that becomes a pretty powerful voice that elected officials listen to. Um, not to say that educators aren't parents, but if they, if, uh, you know, historically, I think elected officials, if they see an email address that ends in, you know, schooldistrict.org or edu, they're, they kind of dismiss that. But, but if it's my Gmail account, um, as a parent, I think elected officials are more responsive to that. Now, I recognize that our subject today is heavy stuff, and so we wanted to end the episode on an uplifting note. And for the final part of our conversation with Spencer Weiler, we're going to do what we normally do, which is ask him how he got into education, uh, why it inspires him, and how it helps him be a better disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's join Spencer and Lynette for the final part of their conversation. Let's get to this part about you, Spencer. So um, tell us about your educational background and what led you to be an educator. Um, So my educational background is I, when I was studying here at BYU um, for my undergraduate degree, I was a a history major and uh, Portuguese and political science uh, minors. and I was getting close to graduation, and I'm like, what do I do with a degree in history? Well, so so as I started prayerfully considering what am I to do with um, this degree in history, um, I really felt like I drew back to my mission experience and felt like, oh, I enjoyed and felt like I, I have been blessed with the ability to be um, or the gift of being a decent teacher. and. Um, and so then I pursued um, uh, a secondary, I pro, a delayed graduation and added secondary ed as a second major and, and then felt like I had a more marketable degree. And, and um, so then after I finished up my undergraduate degree here at BYU, I pursued a master's in instructional science here at BYU. And then I pursued my uh, principal license with within the educational leadership and foundations pro or department at BYU. And then I, at that point, one of my career or lifetime bucket list goals was to uh, earn my doctorate. Um, my wife and I moved our family out to Virginia and I studied at Virginia tech um, to pursue my doctorate while I was working as an administrator. You know, as far as what led me to seek education. So I, I think at one level, um, from like a spiritual level, I felt like I was called to this profession. Um, and, and I feel like I, I have been blessed with um, the ability to be an effective teacher. I also um, looked at it from a pragmatic perspective, as I alluded to. And I think I would also share, um, I when I was in high school, I was a goofball. I was just kind of floating along and, and really just kind of, kind of going through the motions, right? But I had a history teacher Stan Seberg, a little shout out to Stan Seberg if you're listening, thank you, um, who um, who really took an interest in me when he shouldn't have. I did not deserve um, anybody's uh, attention, and but he helped me see 
the joy of learning and like how literature and history and and even math and science may interconnect and really help the you know the, and as they interconnect that's where the joy of learning at least for me resides and um and and I ultimately wanted to pay it forward if you will um I went into education to help little Spences, just like Stan Spielberg helped me to see the joys of education. And uh, yeah, so that's that's why I, I've sought out education. Well, I love the last question. Well, it's really two questions. The, why do you think education is important? And I think that that last one, how's it helped you? How's education helped you build your faith? An educated populace is the foundation of uh, our democracy. Um, education is the the unbiased um, equal great equalizer that allows any individual, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, age, um, or what other variable. It allows everyone socioeconomics um, to reach their potential and and to um rise above the conditions of maybe their own personal home life and and become a you know a meaningful contributor to society um and re- again reach their own personal potential like it's not just go get a good job or um become a voting member of society which are good things right but it's it's more just the Again, that joy of learning. Um, so, so, and and the beauty of public education in particular is that it is, it it it's something that's made available to everyone, regardless of where they live and and their own personal economics and and other variables as well. Um, and then, as related to this, how has education helped to build my faith? I go back to what I said. I I felt called to this posi- or this profession, this vocation, um, which is by definition a calling. And um, um, and I have a complete, probably not complete, but I strive to have a complete dependence on my heavenly Father to help me. Every time I go into a classroom um, and because I don't want to just rely on my own innate abilities, but I know that in order to help each individual student reach his or her full potential, I need the guidance and direction from my Heavenly Father to help me do so. And and I get that, you know, I, I like I could just bear testimony that Heavenly Father loves every person that I've had the the opportunity to interact with because I feel like through me, Heavenly Father is able to, um, or through the Holy Ghost is really able to direct me in a way to um, bless the lives of individual students. Now I'm certain I have former students that would say, yeah, you didn't bless my life, but I hope I have done good, good enough in that area. So, or I strive to do better. That's beautiful. Your passion for public education is very evident, and I'm so with you. And you've shared some important insights, not just spiritually, but also into these difficult issues that education faces. And I'm sure what you've said will benefit many people. 
So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Our thanks to Lynette Christensen and Spencer Weiler for their time today. The Seek Learning Podcast is produced by the BYU Education Society in cooperation with the McKay School of Education. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, and I serve along with Michael Leonard as the executive producers of this podcast. We also receive assistance from David Boren, Betsy Ecton, and Lynette Christensen. Editing and production for this episode was carried out by our wonderful students at the McKay School, and our theme music was composed by Alistair Scheuermann. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you liked what you've heard, help us grow the podcast by subscribing or writing a review wherever you receive your podcast, or give the Society a like or comment on Facebook or Instagram. The BYU Education Society also holds an annual conference every June to provide information and inspiration to those of you out there working in the field. We hope you'll join us this June, and you can find more information on our webpage. Just Google Seek Learning Podcast. See you next time. This has been... Seek learning.